Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, LendingLies.com, and The Garfield Firm. Servicing all 50 states and 24 countries with news and analysis about the largest economic crime in human history. This program is for general information only and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice or consultation with a licensed professional. This show is not intended as a solicitation for the engagement of any services. And now, presenting world-renowned author, trial lawyer, CLE lecturer, and court-approved expert witness on securitization of death, Neil Garfield. Escape the evidence trap and foreclosures. Get the judge angry at your opposition. It works. Hi, this is Neil Garfield on this 25th day of March, 2021, Thursday, broadcasting live from Duval County, Florida. You can't fight them. They always win. Oh, the judges are corrupt. Neither of those things is true. I get in a lot of trouble with many of my supporters when... I disclaim the idea that the reason why homeowners are losing is because the judges are corrupt. That's just not true. I mean, I'm not saying there aren't corrupt judges out there, but it's not the reason why many homeowners lose when they try to defend a foreclosure. I mean, most homeowners lose because they don't even try to defend foreclosure, 96% clean up and drop their keys on the kitchen counter and leave. They're giving a gift to people who have not paid anything. So I'm concentrating on teaching the public what to expect from a judge, not some delusion in your own mind about what you should be expecting from a judge or what you think you should be expecting from a judge. A judge is a person with a job. A judge in a foreclosure case has two jobs. The first is to rule on motions and evidence. In other words, granting or denying a motion or admitting or not admitting something into evidence. The second is to make a final judgment based upon what was permitted to come in as evidence. So by the point it gets to making a final judgment, it's based upon the evidence that is in the court record. Every foreclosure case where my client won in court was because of the lack of evidence to support the claim against my client, the homeowner. Trial lawyers understand this perfectly and will play to the bias or inclinations of a judge in order to get favorable rulings on motions, ruling on evidence, and the judgment on the evidence. Lay people either give up their biggest asset and walk away, or they get lost in the weeds and end up missing important opportunities to block evidence, and then they start arguing things that are either not in the court record because they were never admitted into evidence, or not clear from what is in the court record. Lawyers ask for the canceled check. Lay people ask for proof of payment. That could be anything. That leaves your opposition to send you a response on what they think is proof, 
instead of what you were really asking about. So then the motion to compel a response, because if you ask for the cancel check or wire transfer receipt, you're never going to get it. So the lawyer wins on his motion to compel because he asked specifically for that. Most of the time he wins, not all the time. But the layman always loses because proof of payment could be anything. And as long as they responded with some kind of proof that's evidence of the payment was made, including the note or the mortgage or whatever, um, that is proof. So they responded. If you want more, you have to ask for more specifically. So the first lesson is that Google is not a substitute for law school, a law degree, and years of trial and motion hearing experience in courtrooms. So stop thinking you know things that you don't. <clears throat> and by the way, I have switched all my legal research to an outfit called Case Text, C-A-S-E-T-E-X-T, which is by far and away more useful than any tool I have, any other tools I've ever used, and I've used them all. If you're an attorney using any other legal research tool, you're missing out. And no, I get nothing from saying this. And in fact, they don't even know I'm saying it. I'm just giving some guidance to lawyers who are listening. Case Text has made important breakthroughs in artificial intelligence that cut down the research time, the drafting time, the analysis time by just huge margins. In foreclosures, a claim is made against you. It is not you making a claim against anyone else, even though in non-judicial states you have to bring an action for a TRO, temporary restraining order. So the second lesson is that you must stay in that position of where you are defending and not make a claim that you are prosecuting. Why? Because they have the information and you don't. There are exceptions, of course, as when the note or endorsement can be shown by clear and convincing evidence that it can only be a fabrication of forgery and things like that. I've got a case where recently uh, the person who supposedly signed uh, the endorsement uh, swore under oath that he never signed any note any Alange didn't even know what an endorsement was and doesn't know how his, some facsimile of his signature ever got on there. People have often asked me, how do I prove that? They keep asking me that. And my answer is always the same. You don't prove anything because you don't need to prove anything. Stop thinking of yourself as making a claim against anyone and start thinking about it the way it is. Someone is making a claim against you. Stop thinking the other side has a good case and that you need to cleverly avoid the consequences. They don't have a case at all, much less a good case, if securitization is involved. If you want to say that you're proving something, then say that you're proving that they don't have a case. Don't try to prove anything else. Don't try to prove that securitization is evil. 
It isn't, and it never will be evil by any commercial or legal standard. What I have written and spoken about is not that securitization is evil, but that it never happened. And you don't need to prove that either. I've written about it so you will have confidence in asking questions that you think will blow up in your face. You, I want you to have confidence in asking questions that you think will produce responses you don't want to hear. The responses or lack thereof is the key here. But you're not going to ask the questions if you assume or admit <clears throat> that the debt, the loan account, the ownership, and the authority is as presented. Then you've already lost the case. Keep it simple and add other motions merely to direct the court's attention one step in, one step after another, you want to direct the court's attention to the fact that presumptions are being used rather than actual allegations even or admissible evidence. If you look at the complaints in the judicial state, you'll see that they refer to the plaintiff and sometimes they'll say it's the holder. They'll never say it's the holder in due course because then they'd have to prove that they paid for it. And everything else is by uh, implication or presumption. And just remember that any evidence is admissible if there's no timely objection. I mean, sometimes a judge will reject something as stupid, but most of the time, if somebody offers something in evidence, it's in, unless you make a timely objection. Generally speaking, if you realize later that you should have objected, it's too late. The same is true for what I call polite objections, in which the lawyer waits for a long line of questioning to be concluded before he objects to all of them. It's too late. You need to be like a jumping jack up and down, standing, I object, and be able to state on what grounds, foundation, etc. And a corresponding motion that is often overlooked is the motion to strike after your objection has been sustained. That's where the witness is asked a question, you object while the witness is answering, and the court sustains your objection. So now you want the witness's response struck from the record, therefore the court may not consider it. If you don't make that motion, the court might consider it. So you can start with motions directed at dismissing a foreclosure complaint or a petition seeking to cancel or strike a notice of substitution of trustee, a notice of default, or notice of sale. The case against you is that opposing lawyers are implying that they legally represent an unpaid creditor who is losing money because of you. That is their case. If you admit that, you're done. And I'm telling you, there's no reason to admit that because it isn't true. If you can find inconsistencies on the face of their case, you should use those inconsistencies against them. <clears throat> if they seek to have a document considered to be facially valid, you can successfully defend against that assertion 
by pointing out that the document is not complete without referring to witnesses or documents outside the public domain. So, for example, if some, if some key document is signed by Mr. Smith as vice president of ABC or Aquin um, as attorney in fact, and there's no power of attorney that's even referenced, that document is not facially valid. And it would not be accepted by any title company or bank. This is often the case. You might still lose the motion, even if you're right. But what you have done is awaken the judge to the fact that there are key weaknesses in the case against you. Remember, judges are people, and they're not simply going to flip like you do with a coin or something. They start off because the law requires them to start off assuming that the claim against you is true. That's how they're supposed to begin in judicial cases. In non-judicial, it's, it's more confused than that. I agree. But if you remind the judge that you're basically a defender rather than a prosecutor, they will generally line up with what your defense narrative is. Doesn't mean you automatically win, but I'm telling you that my survey, which I agree is not scientific, but I'm telling you 65% of the people who follow what I'm saying win their cases. If it's a lawyer who's, who's a trained litigator, trial attorney, who's been in court many, many times over many, many years, that number rises to 80%. In most civil cases, the named claimant must actually say it. It is losing money as a direct and proximate result of the unlawful conduct of the defendant. But in foreclosure cases, <clears throat> it's not said. It's presumed. It's presumed that they are losing money without saying so. It's presumed that your withholding payment is unlawful, even though there is no such direct assertion, allegation, or statement that the, the named designated claimant, the beneficiary or the plaintiff, is in contractual privity with you. That means that they have any right to even be corresponding with you, much less collecting a debt. In cases where foreclosure procedure is invoked based upon presumed but unstated securitization of the debt, the note or the mortgage, the general consensus of the courts is that no such statements are required because they are cloaked with credibility. That credibility ordinarily comes from the use of the name of a well-known national bank such as U.S. Bank or Deutsche Bank National Trust Company, which is not a bank, uh, as the first party named in the claim against you, even though that bank has only rented out its name for that particular use, for enforcement to make it appear like an institutional case. The presumption or assumption arises that this is an institutionally-based foreclosure proceeding and that such institutions ordinarily don't lie in court. We all know that's what they're doing in most foreclosure cases. Under 
our legal procedure and laws, they are entitled to receive the benefit of that presumption upon presentation of a note and mortgage, along with documentation that says or even just implies the the claimant, the plaintiff, or the beneficiary of the deed of trust paid for the debt, note or mortgage, and is losing money because you didn't pay the, the named designated claimant. The documents imply that the underlying obligation is due to the named claimant, but nothing in those documents specifically says so. It's all implied and presumed if the claim is based on securitization, directly or indirectly. The foreclosure case does not end with the application of those legal presumptions or implications that the underlying obligation exists that the named claimant owns the debt, note, or mortgage, or that the named claimant is losing money because of your breach of a valid legal promise to pay it to them. The case is not even half over unless you fail to contest their case, in which case you've just legally waived any right to defend. Like it or not, all those assumptions, implications, and presumptions exist. If you want to win the case, you need to rebut or defeat the use of those presumptions, or else, in virtually all cases, you will lose. And that's exactly how homeowners do lose. So the first thing you need to keep in mind is that if anyone knows anything about your tra transaction, it certainly isn't you if securitization is involved. You don't know what happened. And so admitting facts that you think must be true is a trap that is carefully laid for you by investment banks in faraway lands and then filtered down through placeholder companies pretending to be servicers who in turn hire attorneys who are protected by litigation immunity even though they're hawking lies in court. If you don't know for a fact that the copies of documents that they are using are, are actually copies of what you signed, why would you admit it? And the answer is you don't know if it is a copy of a copy of a copy of an original signed by you or if it is a copy of a copy of a copy of a recreated document that was fabricated by machines and not by you. So don't admit it. You can say you're without knowledge as to the authenticity of the document and demand strict proof thereof. But none of that will really turn the head of the judge unless you can get the judge angry with your opposition. And the only way to get the judge angry at your opposition is by repeatedly showing the judge that the foreclosure mill is intentionally defying court orders. No judge likes that. And almost all judges will do something about it when it is brought to their attention. It kind of makes it personal. And in pleading it, you might want to consider that aspect, which I have. Like in one case where I asked in the motion that I filed in court, at what point do this court's orders mean anything? That got the attention of the judge. And the only way to show that the other side 
not you, is intentionally defying orders of the court is to get an order of the court commanding the foreclosure mill to do something that they cannot and will not do. And they can't admit that that's what they're doing because they admit they would be admitting that they don't have a case. In most cases, the homeowner knows that they must ask for responses to reasonable discovery demands. They often screw up and don't phrase the demand clearly enough so that it is, so that it is clear what they're asking for. But they use template interrogatories that fail often to address the issues in the I can never give you absolute assurance of the outcome of any litigation, no matter how clear anyone thinks the issues are or how well they are presented. We're dealing in a world of human beings, and results vary. But assuming that proper interrogatories, a proper request for production, and a proper request for admission is drafted, and filed in a timely manner as prescribed by local discovery rules, I can absolutely assure you of one thing that will be true every time. If the foreclosure claim is in any way related to claims of securitization, they won't answer you. They won't. Now, that's a bet I'll take every time. And that is what brings us to the vortex, the central point in foreclosure litigation, the motion to compel. Hence the title of tonight's show. Your discovery demands most, must focus primarily on the existence, ownership, and authority over the underlying obligation, the contractual debt, the payments from the homeowner, proceeds of foreclosures by the same parties. For example, you will find that although U.S. Bank is named as trustee, not in its individual capacity, for the Structured Access Securities Corporation Trust 2006-1A, you'll find that nobody in that group of words gets the money from any foreclosure that was successfully prosecuted by that group of words under the heading of, uh, 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 under the handling of uh, a foreclosure mill that is protected by litigation immunity. If you do that, <clears throat> if you make the right requests in precise, clear language, there is virtually no judge that won't enforce your right to receive adequate responses to your demand for discovery. But your goal is not to get the answers, which you know will never be forthcoming. So if this case involves securitization, they can't answer you. And you want to play off that again and again and again. So the judge is ordering them again and again and again, giving them another chance, another chance, another chance, and they still don't do it. But that only works if your original demand was clear and specific. Your goal is to win, and that means your goal is to extinguish the claim against you in its entirety. Doesn't mean you extinguish the debt, doesn't mean you extinguish the note, doesn't mean you extinguish the mortgage. 
You extinguish the claim. The only way to do that in foreclosure litigation is to limit the evidence they are attempting to use against you and get excluded, get it excluded from evidence or struck from the court record. You accomplish that <coughs> not by arguing that they are lying, but rather that they are not responding at all or they're being evasive. That includes responses that don't quite hit the mark in terms of what you were asking. Now, if you ask for a canceled check and they answer with some vague thing that there was a canceled check or that there was a wire transfer receipt or whatever, but they're still not asking, not providing you with a copy of it, then you can go to the court and say, I want to see a copy of this. They say it happens. Failure to follow the rules is not a reason to dismiss the claim, at least not up front. There are two types of sanctions. One is monetary sanctions, and the other is evidentiary sanctions. Evidentiary sanctions are only entered after all other possibilities have been exhausted. At that point, it is then obvious to the judge that he or she has only two choices. Option one is to ignore the obvious contempt of court, not levy sanctions, and allow the foreclosure mill to go to trial or even summary judgment, even though they refuse to provide corroboration for their implied claim of the existence ownership and authority over the debt, note, and mortgage. My surveys indicate that one-third of the judges would be inclined to do option one, which is to ignore the contempt of court in a foreclosure case. All other cases, 99% of them would levy sanctions. About one-third of the judges, maybe it's a little less now, are so convinced that the foreclosure would result in payment to a creditor that they're willing to risk being overturned on appeal, which frankly rarely happens. So here's a list of the mistakes that completely account for homeowner losses to non-existent entities seeking enforcement of non-existent unowned claims despite their pattern of behavior of neither collecting or even processing the payments of any homeowner or the proceeds of any foreclosure. Failure to file motions and objections often and early that highlight deficiencies and defects in the allegations, assertion statements contained in the argument of counsel and presentations of exhibits. Often you'll find in arguments of counsel or things filed in briefs of counsel is new material that counsel is arguing. He's not testifying, but he wants the judge to take it as fact. You can file motions against that and object to that motion or that brief based on the fact that he's not a sworn witness and has no personal knowledge and lacks foundation. Failure to file properly drafted precision discovery demands and timely serve them as required by law is the primary failure that I see most consistently. Failure to follow up 
a reminder note to opposing counsel so you don't look like you're rushing to, to do a gotcha. Motion to compel, apply for hearing date, apply, appearance at the hearing date with prepared arguments. These are all things that make the difference. And filing the affidavit in opposition to the motion for summary judgment, filing the second motion to compel, filing the motion for filing the second motion for sanctions, getting the hearing date, appearing at the hearing with prepared arguments, cases, statutes, and even demonstrative exhibits. And then a motion in limine or a motion for the court to apply a negative inference on the existence, ownership, and authority over the debt note and mortgage. And again, got to get a hearing date, got to appear. And then a motion for involuntary dismissal with prejudice and good findings of fact and include uh, uh, conclusions of law. I would add that since you're going uphill, it would be wise to use some research and drafting service if you're unsure of how to perform these tasks. Um, that's it for tonight. Happy hunting. Go to the Living Lies blog at livinglies.me and make a donation, please. See you next week. The opinions expressed on The Neil Garfield Show are those of its hosts and should not be ascribed to any other persons or entities. For more information about Neil, the blog, or upcoming seminars, please visit livinglies.me. Give us a call at 954-451-1230 or send an email to n-e-i-l-f-g-a-r-f-i-e-l-d at hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to The Neil Garfield Show. If the information has helped you, consider making a donation by visiting livinglies.me.